create the world of the dream. We bring the subject into that dream, and they fill it with their secrets. Then you break in and steal it. Well, it's not strictly speaking legal. It's called Inception. Welcome back to the OCC Oscar fans. This is Jake, and today we are covering 2011 Best Picture nominee Inception from Christopher Nolan, which incredibly turns 10 years old today. Christopher Nolan's new movie, Tenant, has been pushed back, and Inception has been re-released into theaters for the 10-year anniversary. Inception, I'd say, very much is the movie that elevates Christopher Nolan into the tier of, of the most elite creative filmmakers of his generation, It also happens to be my single favorite movie of all time, and yet, something's happened in the decade since this movie has come out. There's been a certain kind of backlash to Inception specifically. The quote-unquote serious film conversation consensus that I've observed on Twitter at least is that the movie's not really that good, that it's hugely flawed, that people who love this movie are film simpletons. Well, today my goal is to reclaim the narrative on this. Inception is brilliant, the detractors are wrong, Today's episode at 10 years old is in defense of Inception. And here with me to go three levels deep today are the gang from the On Second Watch podcast, Tim and Dana. Welcome, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, I appreciate it. I know you guys have covered Inception on your podcast already, so I have a little bit of a sneak peek on on how you feel about the movie. Do you want to kind of talk about On Second Watch and and what you guys do and how you format your show? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I appreciate it. So... Our approach is we, we focus very heavily on movie nostalgia. And by that, I mean there are so many movies that we've seen in our past that we haven't seen in a long time. And we typically have some feelings about those movies that stick with us over time. But it, you kind of get into dangerous territory exploring your nostalgia because something that you hold near and dear to your heart, um, it might be awful. But um, the, the kind of the thought is is that you know, we want to go back and review these movies that we haven't seen in a while, back from our childhood or, you know, as through our teen years and maybe even before we were born that, you know, we saw along the way. And take a chance to review the movie with our memory. And then as a foursome, we sit down and we watch the movies again. And then we jump back on the microphone and start recording our our thoughts and feelings about our new experiences just to just to see how nostalgia plays an impact on on how we view things and what's changed over the years. Very cool format and a good segue into this movie because you mentioned sometimes the stuff that you hold near and dear to your heart, you know, maybe other people don't feel the same way. And this is Inception is a movie that I I feel like I've noticed the discourse around it turning a little bit negative in the last couple years, I guess. This, for me, is my favorite movie of all time. And I watch a lot of weird stuff. Like, you know, as an Oscar completist, like, I watch, like, foreign films, like, very artistic, weird shorts. And, like, sometimes I like those, too. But I feel like I am entitled to my, like, the validity of my opinion or whatever. And I love this movie. And I feel like the discourse around it has become, you know, turning up the nose at people who who really love the movie and so i want to take this episode and reclaim that (laughs) what is what do you guys love about inception honestly 
I love the fact that it's one of those movies that it's like you can you can just watch it and it makes you think about everything. You question all parts of your reality, wondering what's real, what's not. And it's just something that it's like, you could almost jump into a rabbit hole with your, your thoughts and feelings about it. Even after all this time, it's still one of my favorite movies too, just because of the feeling. I love the music for it. Um, really, it's just, to me, the whole thing is just an art form. Yeah, and I think, you know, going to your, your thought about this, with the discourse about the movie, um, I'm, I'm finding that a lot of people, a lot of films these days, not to bash anything, but a lot of them are very surface level deep. They don't really challenge you to think deeply. I mean, nothing against the Marvel franchise, the cinematic universe. I, I enjoy those films for what they are, but they're popcorn movies. They're something you can watch and cheer on the heroes and get a you know good entertaining experience, but they don't really dive into a, a deep experience, which, I mean, the Nolan brothers are are known for. They they are very creative, very unique in what they do, and especially with Christopher Nolan's movies, is he's not going to just approach it ABC. He's going to take you for turns and um, challenge you to think a little bit differently. And one of the things I love about Inception is that it's it's a sci-fi, but they don't dive into really the the science of it. They they allude to some things. They put these little sticky things on your arm, and suddenly you fall asleep, and they can go in your dreams. They don't bother explaining how because then you're going to get muddled into some alternate science that doesn't make any sense and it kind of takes you out of the experience. Uh, they just kind of show you how it happens, um, what you have to do, and let you experience it and you know, kind of experience these dream worlds uh, in ways that no other film ha- or really television for that matter has done before. And it, I, you know, when we saw it in theaters, as soon as it was over, you know, Jaws dropped. We're like, we have to go see this again now, you know. And we and did. Yeah, we we went and bought tickets to go see it the next day. You know, no joke. So it's it's one of those films that it really challenges you, and it's unique through and through between the acting, like Dana said, the music. It's to me, it's one of a kind, and it can't be replicated. Which is just, you know, it'll it'll stand out forever in my mind. It's about as accessible as you can make this complicated an idea. And Christopher Nolan, obviously famous for like having astrophysicists come when he was filming Interstellar and address the cast. And, you know, the new movie Tenet looks like it goes really deep on weird theories of time that are very complex. But he does find a way to tell this story in a really clear. I know some people find the movie confusing, but I guess the more you watch it, it is like to me a really immaculately told story. He had this idea. The execution is perfect. I think that's what I love about it. It's so thoughtfully constructed. Like, I feel like everybody thinks about the dream within a dream structure and then, like, the spinning top. And it's easy to forget. Like, I forgot until I rewatched this again last night how dynamite it is is just, like, a pure action film. Right. Like, the sequences are so masterfully delivered. It's got, you guys mentioned the score. It's got this powerful emotional thread throughout the story with Cobb and Mal. To me, it's just a masterclass in storytelling and filmmaking. I agree completely. Actually, it's really funny that you mentioned that, you know, you watched it last night and you just were instantly reminded about everything. Um, I was actually talking to my parents earlier today and then my dad started playing um, some music from Inception and he's like, what scene is this? And then it was like immediately as soon as I heard the music, I was taken back to that scene and I could see it just playing in my head. It was just so memorable. 
Yeah, and you also mentioned, you know, about a masterclass in filmmaking. The, the, the fact that Christopher Nolan spent so much time and energy in making the effects as practical as possible really says, you know, it's really a testament to what he was trying to do. He, everything he could possibly do with practical effects and, you know, mocked explosions, he would do and just obviously record it really fast to slow it down and things like that. But there's very little CGI compared to movies of that time. And I think it's very noticeable. You can, you can tell and really experience how unique this film is and how real it feels, even in these dream worlds. Yeah, totally agree. And so you can tell that I set up a very fair and balanced discussion where I only invited people who love the movie. <laughs> but I want to at least kind of pretend to give credence to some of the dissenting opinions that are kind of floating out there now. So my thought for kind of this first section is to kind of look at maybe I'd say the three biggest areas of criticism against this movie and kind of just talk about them, you know, whether we agree with with these criticisms and then maybe if we care about them, if we do agree. Sure. Um, so I'd say kind of the first I'd say probably the primary criticism, honestly, is it as it relates to the people who would maybe like not take me seriously as a film person upon learning, you know, this is my favorite movie. Like we'll get into plot holes, but I think that's maybe the most common criticism. I, I think this idea, though, that, that it's pop psychology, that it's like dorm room level psychology. I think that's the most biting criticism when it comes to like undermining the film's legacy. And in essence, this is the argument that like this movie's interesting if you're a stoner <laughs> or like put differently that like the quote serious film crowd feels that the questions that people who love this movie like to argue about lack depth or substance. I don't really agree with this take, but what, what do you guys think about that perspective? Yeah, I so here's when you're de- when you're really dealing with a concept or an idea, something that doesn't exist in the world as we know it, you know, maybe we will be able to dive into people's dreams and chain and plant an idea, you know, in the future. I mean, yeah, who knows, but this is very abstract and it's based in reality, but taken to kind of a, a different universe. So one of the good things about approaching a film or storytelling in that way is that you can approach it from multiple perspectives and kind of get a different feel. When we both saw this when, well, this came out in 2010, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 2010. So, you know, we're... Both fresh out of college. At yeah, that we're right point. out of college. So in our, in our 20s, we see it, we have one perspective. Stoner kid in college or high school sees this, and they might see something totally different. Or a mom and dad or grandma and grandpa might see this and, and, and see it in a different way. So... I, I'm not. Gonna, I wouldn't say that it's it's pop psychology. It's that it is uniquely constructed puzzle that, depending on where you're sitting, you can kind of see it in a different light. Like a lot of the things revolving around Cobb and Mall, I didn't didn't take you know too much in heart. You know, being twenty something watching this, but now you know in my thirties and I'm watching this and I have kids, I have a wife. You know, I kind of see it more from Cobb's perspective, the, the challenges that he faces. You know, why does he want to go home? What's, what is this internal battle he has going on with Maul? And it, it's, it's, really, it's really powerful. So I, honestly, I think it depends on your, who you are, your experiences, and what really stands out to you. You can kind of get a different feel for this movie. So I don't know. Pop psychology, maybe in, 
in some perspective, but uh, I think everyone can come out of this movie with a different feel and different experience. And the best part about it is you can get together and talk about it and everyone has different opinions on what happened or what's real, what's not. Sure, you can have an academic discussion about it and you can and really get into it, but um, I mean, overall, it's just, it's, it's fascinating to see what people come out of this movie with, you know, what are their thoughts and feelings once those credits roll or once that top starts to shuffle, maybe not fall over and cut to black. I, yeah, I, I totally agree. Like the arguments that people have about this film, first of all, I think that's, that's how we consume stuff now. Like you want to watch something and then you want to go on Reddit or you want to go watch new rock stars. And like, like there's this whole kind of post experience experience that this movie, it didn't, it didn't start it at all. I mean, people have been on like X-Files message boards and probably even before that, but it definitely is like the first movie I remember really doing that for where it's like, I wanted to go read every theory. Is there anything wrong with that? Like, I don't, I don't think so. Like the argument, the arguments about the puzzle of the film, right? Like it's not like, it's not about class hierarchies or something like you would argue about after parasite. Like it just doesn't even want to be that. And so I think it's successful because it kind of creates a frame for a story, tells a fascinating story that people then want to go like talk about, I guess I can see maybe where someone who's not interested in like sci-fi or, or the puzzle of this movie would find that discussion like not interesting, but I don't, I don't think it invalidates it. I, I agree with, with basically with how you teed it up for sure. Yeah. It's, it's one of those where it's just like, I feel that this is one of those movies, though, as you said, it's, it's, it is sci-fi, but it can really hit everybody in different age groups. I think it just depends on what your interest really is in the movie to begin with. So, I mean, I feel like it's a concept that most people could at least get behind to, to see it, but... I don't know. Everybody experiences so different. Tim, you just you you said it perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you you know you you want a tragic love story, it's there. You want an action thriller, it's there. You want science fiction, it's there. I think the only thing that's missing is a musical number. Uh, but uh, it's just, I don't know. Other than eat off, eat us pee off. Well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, but I didn't see any any dancing going on. Huh? If if anyone was going to dance, it was going to be uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Tom Hardy. Those two. Those two would have like a, a dance-off, but um, <laughs> that was the only thing I was missing from this movie. I had a little bit of everything for, for everybody. I don't know. I, I really appreciate what Christopher Nolan brings to his films to you know kind of leave you wanting more, questioning, having discussions after the fact. Because sitting down for two and a half hours of your time to watch this movie is one thing, but then when you spend hours upon hours with other people talking about the experience, it just makes it more fun. Totally agree. Okay, so anybody who wants to tweet us and say that this movie's pop psychology, we have indisputably swatted away your argument. <laughs> a is A is down. Yeah, come at us. <laughs> B number two is just sort of that this movie's too self serious, right? And people would point at like the character names, Ariadne in particular who's a Greek mythological character associated with mazes and labyrinths. It's like very overt. Um, you guys actually mentioned on your podcast, I didn't know this before I listened to your guys' podcast about all the names spelling out dreams, yeah. Dom, Robert, Eames, Arthur, Maul, and Saito. And then just even a level up, like this is a movie with a lot of people acting seriously. It doesn't have a lot of jokes in it. What do you guys think about this critique? You know, 
until I started doing um, the On Second Watch podcast, I never really looked into things like that on movies until Tim started to bring up a lot of things. I actually found that that's a very common theme in most movies is that there's there's something hidden, whether it's in the names or or it's in like the themes that they have. I don't know. I mean, if, if somebody really wants to say it's over serious, sure, they could go for that. I think they'd be really surprised that that's really a theme in most movies, that even movies that is just kind of basic, those themes are there. Yeah, and to me, I, I look at that more as their Easter eggs because not everyone has a history lesson in Greek mythology. How you know? So they wouldn't put that together. They would just say, "Well, it's a strange name." The fact that the names spell out dreams—it's—it's it's kind of a—it's a little jab, you know, to to kind of to play at it. But they, he didn't throw it in their face. Like if, like if he wrote all the names down on a chalkboard and capitalized, bolded the first letter and just kind of left it there. That's one thing, but. It wasn't like an overt, in-your-face type of thing. It's it's after the fact. These are the kind of things that people put together and like, oh, hey, look at that. Look at that connection. Look at that thread. To me, I it really depends on the kind of movie that you want. I mean, there's there's plenty of sci-fi action movies out there that have a lot of humor to them. You know, look at Star Wars. There's there's a lot of humor in Star Wars, but it depends on the film and the atmosphere that you want. I don't think that it, this movie really called for a lot of comedy. I mean, they they did have its moments. To, to kind of make you chuckle, but it wasn't that wasn't really what it was all about. And I, I can appreciate the the subtlety to the humor, because that's you know in real life things are things can be funny even in the most serious and dire of situations. But if it was in your face and too much of it, then it, it would kind of would have kind of taken away from kind of that emotion that you're, that uh, I think Christopher Nolan was really going for in this movie. Yeah, I think that's totally true. Like, there's a gravitas to it for sure. There's Tom Hardy probably is the closest thing to like comic relief yes <laughs> i think the thing for me is like more i guess society wise or culture wise like to the extent that there is a monoculture which is decreasingly the case like people are just consuming whatever they like personally now but to the extent there still is a monoculture i feel like that mindset is is kind of cyclical and christopher nolan honestly to me gets a lot of the credit for being central to both ends of this cycle. Cause like, if you think about like Batman begins versus like the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Batman and Robin, like everyone loved the fact that Batman begins was grittier, was more realistic, was less cartoonish. By the time you get three of these serious Batman movies, the pendulum swings back a little bit and people are like, God, this is so silly. It's Batman. Why is it so serious? And I feel like maybe inception gets a little bit of the lingering after effect of that. It actually may get a little bit of a lingering effect from that. If, if you just evaluate it as its own piece of art, I mean, I don't know. He's, it's it's his life's work. Like, I feel like it's sort of his ultimate project that he wanted. He, like, made the Batman movie in order to give himself experience to make Inception. So I don't blame him for taking it seriously. No, and I, yeah, you're right. The, the pendulum does swing. I think sometimes after getting into some really deep subject matter, people need to come up for air and go to the humor side but like you said this is kind of his his life's work I, I think it was 10 years in the making from his own idea to building up his own experience to know how to actually put this idea on film so it it's it does definitely does have that deep personal meaning to Christopher Nolan this that's just kind of that's that's Christopher Nolan's approach it's it's a uh, it is grittier it is it is a a battle uh, it is an internal struggle with a lot of the, the characters. I think 
kind of across the board there's that internal struggle with their with all of his main characters in his yeah. movies I don't know if I if I want to see something humorous I know where to go but if I want to really have an emotional connection to the the characters and the story I Nolan's one of the people I go to I mean there's a lot of them I mean, we we just um we just recorded an episode on Girl Interrupted and I got a chance to have a Q&A with James Mangold the director and he's super gritty with what he does I mean between you know Logan and Wolverine Ford versus Ferrari I mean he he definitely goes there and similar to Christopher Nolan he'll he'll drop the subtle humor but he wants to make it so it's it's not detracting from the emotion he's trying to convey in the film so those are the kind of movies that I gravitate more towards because like I said I know where to go if I want my humor and my slapstick and laugh out loud moments but I personally when I watch a movie I really want to feel it and get emotional I'm not afraid to admit it I if a movie really gets me, I will cry and I will, I will sob. <laughs> so uh, those are the kind of movies I look for. That is quite the get. I feel like after this full-throated defense of Christopher Nolan, I deserve for him to come on this podcast. There but you go. I don't know if I'm going to get that same Q and A. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, I, I tried to get somebody from Inception nonstop, and uh, no one was was taking the bait. So maybe you'll be lucky. All right. Well, internet haters. Your two first arguments are gone. We've totally debunked them. <laughs> All you got left is your plot holes. So we'll run pretty quickly through the various plot holes. I'd say the one that I'm sick of seeing that's just like everyone makes a meme out of it. Why doesn't Michael Caine's character fly Cobb's kids to France? So should we just address that off the top? Yeah, let's go for it. Yes. Uh, so for me as a parent, I just can't see that happening. I don't know. I understand why the people in the movie world feel that that's an issue, but legitimately, I would never send my kids into harm's way. And if I had them with a guardian, my guardian wouldn't send my kids into harm's way either. Because if he's in trouble, why would we do this? Yeah, I mean, he's... So I have, I have two things about this. And one of them I mentioned in our in our episode. But the first thing I want to say was that He's a felon. He's wanted by, I forget, was it the FBI or someone? I don't Just, remember who. He's, he's a wanted man that if he steps foot in on U.S. soil, he was going to be arrested. So even if his kids were to go to France, he's still, you know, have, having to look over his shoulder. He doesn't know if he's safe, if his kids are safe. He has all these, these debts and, and troubles with the COBOL. I mean, there's, there's a lot of backstory I, I think I read in a comic book. But, I mean... He's, he's not free until he can truly find an escape. Just bringing his kids over is kind of a Band-Aid fix to the overall problem. The whole thing needs to be solved for his kids to have as normal a life as possible. And the second thing was what we did talk about in, um, in our episode, at least kind of my perspective on it, was that him getting back to his kids was more of a metaphor for him getting home and you know, back where his kids are living in the United States, that's home. He had to leave his home because of what he did to Maul ultimately. And out of fear, getting back to his kids, it's it's that return to normalcy and the idea of of where where your reality is. Because if he's not returning back to what his own reality was, then he's still living in some dreamland and he's never going to have resolve. I think that's exact. that nails it on the head for me. That's exactly how I feel about it. This one never bothered me. I don't know. There's so much internet discussion about it. No. It just never bothered me. He wants to get back to his life. I'd say the second set of plot holes that people, there's a lot of these, but they basically all revolve around like how do the rules of this movie work? So like 
why doesn't the gravity shift in the van wake up Arthur or change the gravity in the snow level? How does the defibrillator help resuscitate Fisher from getting shot in the chest? Maybe that's a little bit outside of the scope of this one, but it's like they all sort of revolve around, I guess, the plausibility of this highly unplausible scenario. Are there any of these that, that you guys give credence? You know, maybe this is me being ignorant to the the plot hole i don't know but a lot of those things is it's just like these are dream worlds the rules don't necessarily apply as we would know them here i don't know if that's a fair argument but it's just those rules don't necessarily go it sort of applies to everything i mean you can basically say that about anything in the movie (laughs) i mean if if we're fine with a train flying down the street blowing up cars and everyone just is going about their day there's there's things that you i think you can just kind of accept as part of the movie i think there are times where after rewatching this multiple times you know a long time ago i'm like so why aren't they waking up in the van or you know that kind of stuff but at the same time it's just like you need to let yourself go except they're in a dream world physics you know are loose and you know things are are a little bit different so if you think too much or try to overly critique or you know make real some of these elements you're you're just not going to be able to enjoy the movie so i really try to separate myself from the reality when i'm watching these movies because it's it's a form of entertainment so just kind of let yourself go a little bit the only thing i can't let go of is when there's pretend computer hackers since i am in it that when they're just bashing a keyboard and suddenly they can program <laughs> something or they I just, I can't get over that kind of stuff. That's just because that's my career. Yeah, I feel like everybody has, like, points that they're sensitive to. I don't, I mean, I think that's in general just a good reminder to, like, (laughs) all of Reddit to, like, that there's other things in the world. But even for, you know, somebody, like, who wants to spend all their time digging into, like, the consistency or continuity of this movie, and, and that's fine. Like, people could spend their time however they want. I think that, like, Christopher Nolan has earned with just, like, the thoroughness of, this story and and kind of the way that he at least closes the loop on the big picture i feel like he's earned my benefit of the doubt for example like there's a lot of i think another area under this that a lot of people question is like who gets to control what like if if we're in use of stream in the first level how can leonardo dicaprio bring a projection of a train into it right those types of questions you can hear that question and either think like oh that must be a plot hole or I bet they thought about it and there's an explanation for that. And I, I don't, you know, I don't know what all those explanations are, but I feel like I'm, maybe I'm just sort of biased toward like accepting that there must be a explanation for it. If that well, makes yeah, sense. I mean, kind of going along with what I was saying earlier is that, you know, he doesn't dive into the science for a reason because he doesn't want you overanalyzing how things are possible, but just accept that things might be possible. And that's, that's kind of the key to being able to enjoy a film like this is just he, he kind of sets the stage like, hey, we can do this, so let's go experience this journey together. I think that's all fair. The one hole that I, to- I do accept as a plot hole, or at least I have no explanation for, how does Fisher not recognize Saito when they're on an airplane together? They're billionaires in the same industry, and he makes no attempt to disguise himself. Is there any explanation for this? All I can think of is 
maybe he was so distraught and so angry at his dad that he couldn't actually see who was in front of him. Like, just, like, everything else that he was feeling, thinking, and going through just took precedence over what was in front of him. So, make almost like he was going through the motions but not really truly there. That's all I can think of. Yeah, when, when I posed that question to Dana when we were thinking about this ahead of time, when she said that just out of nowhere, just immediately, that was her response. I'm like, whoa, that's, that's about as real as you can get. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, I, I just try to think, when you're, when you're totally focused on something, when you're dealing with grief, everything around you is a blur. You're not, you're not really paying attention to the world around you. You're, you're in your own head. And to me, that's, that's probably what makes the most sense is he just he, he didn't see anybody or interact with anybody if he could help it. He was just kind of narrow, just focused on what do I do next? I just lost my dad. I got no closure with him. What do I need to do? So, I, I think when when Dana said that, that's to me that's as brilliant of a response as any. Yeah, I can't come up with a better reason than that. <laughs> Gold star for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course that's open to interpretation, but that's all I could think of. I have to, full disclosure, I am a psychology major from school, so that's the only reason I thought that way. <laughs> I mean, that is, this is your movie. <laughs> and you're fully qualified to say it's not pop psychology. So is there anybody, I guess anything else that anybody could even say about this movie, or have we fully vindicated it from all the online hatred? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think too much about what could possibly be a, a plot hole. It's just... To me, there's more more fun things to discuss about this movie, uh, about theories and what is, what isn't, than to worry about, uh, you know, whether or not, you know, how how could they possibly be driving this van and not get shot with machine guns chasing it, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> I just I don't have I don't have time to think about that because we're too busy discussing all the the fun theories about this movie. That's a great transition because that's what I want to do next. Everybody talks about the ending, and I, you know, we've probably spoiled it. I'll record a spoiler warning for the top, but I'll just say like a massive <laughs> spoiler warning now because I want to get into the only question that there really is to discuss about this film, and that is what happens at the end. Is this a dream or is it reality? So I know from, from your guys' podcast, unless you guys have evolved on this, you both believe that it's reality. Is that still the case? Correct. Yeah, all, all four of us, we're all in the, the line that this is reality. This is my favorite theory. I mean, I hope it's reality. I want it to be reality because then the story works. They pull off the heist. Um, but what what are your defenses? What's kind of the the argument that this is reality? So for me, um, the biggest argument that I have is that the movie purposely focuses on a totem that is not his. It's definitely Maul's. And I don't think that that really is his version of whether it's reality or not. That's just his connection to her. So I don't know. That, that's the only thing that I can think of is that it's not his, so it doesn't say whether it's his reality or not. And he could choose whether that was his reality or not. That kind of plays into a lot of the research I was doing. I was trying to see, did Christopher Nolan ever say if this was reality or not? So I, I did come across a speech from Princeton University. It's a, a, commencement, a commencement speech that he had. And the line that I called out that was most important to me was 
The way the end of the film works, Cobb was off with his kid. He was in his own subjective reality. He didn't really care anymore, and that makes a statement that perhaps all levels of reality are valid. So to me, regardless of whether it's our reality or the dream world, to Cobb, this was his reality. I, you know, I agree. I don't. I do not think that top was was his totem. It was Maul's to begin with, and he he took it. So it doesn't have the same impact that a totem is supposed to have anymore. You can also go off of some discussions that Michael Caine had that you know when when he was talking to Christopher Nolan about this movie. Christopher Nolan said, "Any scene that you're in is reality." So you got that going for you too. And then I just sometimes I just like to be an optimist. So you know what? <laughs> It's as real as it gets. That's how I read it partially, I think, because I don't have like the mental capacity to think of outside the text <laughs> too far. I went through again. I haven't done this for like 10 years. When I go, th- when I Google now and you're like, is it a dream or is it real? It seems like the argument that's emerged, like the counter argument to it being real, is that it's all a dream and Cobb's the subject. Because I remember like back when the movie came out and I like got lost in Reddit subthreads and stuff, the, the theory that really stuck with me was that it was like Maul's dream and the whole movie was about Maul actually. And like I remember loving that theory and like being convinced by it, but I don't remember it and I can't find it now. Hmm. Like even like when I specifically Google, it's all Maul's dream, it's all Maul, like I, every single like permutation of words that should bring up that theory there's just like nothing out there that's actually really interesting because if you really wanted to spin it that way you probably could make a pretty strong case for that let's try (laughs) all right so at what point does maul start dreaming this dream is it when she tries to get back into the dream world with Cobb after he deceives her and gets her out I think okay from from saying that it seems to me like that's that's a good spark that like if Maul was going to try to incept Cobb it would naturally seem to be in order to convince him that the world he thinks is real is not real yeah very very much so in this scenario I guess Maul will would have not killed herself by jumping off the ledge she would have just woken herself up and they would be in that world right i'm already too confused (laughs) i feel like i would need to really watch it in depth from that perspective and had i feel like you'd have to watch the whole movie because it'd probably be like somewhere Mm. where she just squeeze it in there i don't know yeah, might have to watch this movie holding a piece, big piece of paper that says it's Maul's dream on it the whole time to remind myself that's the perspective I need to take and see if I can come up with something. I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can recreate whatever resonated with me 10 years ago <laughs> fell out of my mind. I remember very concretely that there was a theory that everything is reality until, Maul, until Cobb takes the sedative in Africa and then everything's a dream. And I remember one part of that argument being that you never see his totem fall again after that. Mm -hmm. But I don't remember any of the other context around it or why that would matter or be interesting to the plot. Yeah, I I think that was that was one theory I had thought of, you know, kind of aligned myself with a while ago is that, you know, when he went to go spin the top, 
it falls, so we don't know what really happens. And I feel that was deliberate. Because, I mean, why would he have it fall? If, if he's trying to let us know if he's in a reality or a dream, why don't we see the top? So I, I definitely think there's some credence to that thought, and especially since it is supposed to be some ultra-powerful sedative to let you have these insane, deep, you know, multi-year dreams. I, I definitely think there's there's something to that. Are you are you using Maul's totem as but, that again? Yeah, again that that is because then the argument of what his totem actually is comes up. Yeah, so it, I guess it depends on how you align your theory on what the true totem is, and and that, that kind of determines all the uh, all, all the rest of the it theories. It does. What is his totem? Do we know? Uh, I believe, th- and I don't know if this was a theory or not, but he has his wedding ring on when he's mm. in his reality. Whenever he's in the dream world, he doesn't, or maybe it's opposite of that. It's one of the yeah, two, but I, I think I, the wedding ring is, is it. If I remember correctly, it's every time he's in a dream, he's wearing his wedding ring, but when he is not in a dream, it's off. Exactly. I think that's the, the direction. So I think I had heard somebody talk about the wedding ring. It may have even been you guys. And so I did notice it for the first time. I had never noticed it before. And I noticed right off the bat, like in the first scene when when he's old, and then it's the scene that comes back at the end of the movie when he's in limbo, he is wearing his ring. So I think it would line up then that it's when he's dreaming he's wearing his ring. So are, are you <laughs> saying that we implanted the idea of the wedding ring into your... In my... <laughs> so you're incepting me. That is, that is the greatest... It's a trick. podcast within a podcast. What are you going to do? <laughs> well, this is... Man, this is... This is a lot. I'm already confused. It's my podcast. So I don't know how that goes. Wait, I thought you were on our podcast. What's going on? Oh, no. <laughs> well, the last, there is one more. So the, the theory that I've seen most explained recently, like in a time frame that I can remember before I went to sleep, before you sedated me and I went to sleep seeing the <laughs> podcast, was that it's all a dream and Cobb is the subject. And the, the argument here was that it was I sort of alluded to this when we were talking about plot holes, but it could maybe be seen as intentional that like if the dreamer creates the dream, the subject populates the dream, and then the other sleepers just are in the dream, then how, for example, on the third snow level where Eames is the dreamer and Fisher is the subject, how does Cobb's projection mal infiltrate the dream? And so they use this to argue that somebody is basically incepting Cobb that he's the subject. And then there's a number of different specific versions of this theory underneath that. So, like, one is that Miles has hired Ariadne to plant the idea in Cobb that he must move on from Mel. Um, and, and they kind of point to the phrase, do you want to be an old man filled with regret, destined to die alone, that's spoken by multiple characters throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. There's another version of the theory where Ariadne is a master psychologist posting as an architectural student who's trying to get... Cobb to, to reconcile with his past. There's all, there's another one that she's an FBI agent trying to get Cobb to admit to killing Maul. My head's going to explode. I don't really have anywhere further to go with any of these theories, but I think that's the most flushed out stuff I can find on the internet today. Well, what's, what's interesting about pretty much all of those options that you said is that I think that Christopher Nolan purposely set this up so that any of those could be a possibility. I mean, just the thought of Ariadne being, like, 
a psychologist or an FBI agent or somebody who's actually working against him and trying to catch him in like the act of something. That could be fun. That is actually a pretty fun theory, but I think that's that's something that could go along with the general idea of this movie to begin with. Like you could go with that. It's a little bit off, but I mean, at the same time, that could be a real possibility. I'm trying to think back at the very beginning of the movie when they are at they're approaching Saito about the the concept of, you know, protecting your your dreams um, at the Japanese temple. When, I mean, Maul's projecting herself there, are they in Cobb's dream? I think it's Cobb's dream because uh, Arthur wakes up first. The architect is the guy who who tries to sell him out. Right. Yes. So Cobb has to be the dreamer, and and Saito's the subject. Okay. I think so. I think yeah. So I guess there's there's definitely some credence to that one too about you know, Maul shows up. And if if Cobb's the dreamer, so I could I could buy that. You know, now I'm gonna have to watch it again and again. <laughs> and uh, you're welcome. Put all these different hats on. <laughs> See, we'll never complain about watching this movie again. So. Absolutely not. <laughs> That's true. Well, I think that is enough theorizing for for one podcast. So the last subject to end on then for me is just the legacy of this. So obviously this is an Oscars podcast. This is a four-category Oscar winner. Mm -hmm. Cinematography, Wally Pfister, who beat Roger Deakins that year for True Grit, uh, beat Black Swan. This won both sound editing and sound mixing, which starting this year would be one combined award. And then it won visual effects. Um, including Andrew Lockley, who's doing the visual effects for Tenant. It did not win art direction, which it lost to Alice in Wonderland. Music, which we've talked so much about Hans Zimmer's score. I was blown away by the score again yesterday when I rewatched it. Oh my gosh. It's probably one of the best movie scores in history, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, if, yeah, if I sit there and I'm, I'm watching to, or listening to that soundtrack you know, on loud volume in my car, I mean, I will get the chills. It's just... It's powerful stuff. It's an incredible score. Really? Yeah. I will say, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross for The Social Network, I also think is an incredible score. It was also kind of kicked them off as pr- maybe the preeminent movie composers of, of the last decade. So yeah. at least it's a legitimate contender there. But um, didn't win that. Didn't win Best Picture. Lost to the King's Speech. Ugh. Yeah, I was almost afraid to get started on this topic because I went on a rant <laughs> about this. Just I, just the snubs across the board just really just irked me. Well, it was nominated also for Best Original Screenplay. That lost to The King's Speech, which I just can't. Mm, I, I, no. I don't know. But snubs you talked about. Christopher Nolan. Yep. Seems like a big snub. That, that kills me. <laughs> me too. I- I don't feel like Hollywood likes Christopher Nolan very much or anything he touches, really. He finally got his nomination for Dunkirk. Yeah. I thought he was going to get a win there. What really blows my mind is that Inception, you know, was nominated for Motion Picture of the Year, nominated for uh, Original Screenplay, Art Direction, and yet... Christopher Nolan didn't even get nominated for Best Director. I just, it's really hard for me to fathom how that's possible. 
but eh, I don't yeah I don't want to get angry again. <laughs> <laughs> We're kind of easing easing out here, so I won't fire you up by yeah. talking about Leo. I'll just jump to the to the all time <laughs> list rankings where this performs much better. I think at the time that you guys uh, did the podcast, I think you said it was thirteen. When I yeah when I looked. Uh, Back a little bit ago, it was 13, right between Forrest Gump and Empire Strikes Back. It is today, number nine. Oh, what do you wow. think about that? Top ten. That's right awesome. Behind, Let's celebrate. It's well deserved. Right behind 12 Angry Men <laughs> and Schindler's List. Wow. 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 12 Angry Men is up that high, really. That's really high. I mean, it's a, it's a good movie. I think it's maybe just a very famous old movie. Yeah. That could be. Wow. But hey, top ten, that's... Uh, I mean, that's more celebration to me. So. <laughs> where's, uh, where's King's Speech on that list? Yeah, not, not top ten. Is it on the list? It is not in the top ten. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Any, any final closing thoughts? I feel like we've defended the integrity of Inception. I feel good about it. I, I just think, especially for people who haven't seen it yet, go watch it, get your own opinion, and then just see it all like it i don't know it just opens up a whole new world to everybody yeah and i think this is it's one of those movies that um should have a lasting impression because it doesn't put itself in any specific time zone yes certain technology uh is available um their phones and things like that kind of put you in a certain decade but it's it's timeless in that the concept and the idea the the thought the originality of it Really, you can you should be able to pick this up at any time and really enjoy jumping into this and, and exploring the dream world and, and reality. So, I don't know. It's I think Dan and I both said this was ten out of a ten. Mm-hmm. Even though we said there was no perfect movie, we <laughs> we we blew that up. But um, it's just you know like it it's the top ten rated movie right now on on IMDb. So I, it's it's there for a reason. It's people enjoy it. They have fun with it. It across the board between the acting, the sound, the music, it's it's phenomenal. So it's it's a lot of fun. So yes, this was a very one sided debate about Inception, but I don't <laughs> care. It's that good. It's how I like my arguments. Right. <laughs> Tim Dana on Second Watch Podcast. You can find that on Apple Podcasts, right? Any anywhere you get podcasts? Pretty much everywhere. Apple, Spotify, we're the big ones. Appreciate the time, guys. Thanks for going going deep on Inception. And thank you so much for having us. Yeah, appreciate, really appreciate it. it.